Our text this morning is is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. You will find this passage on page 983 in the Bible in the chair in front of you. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Stephanie. You may be seated. This morning, we're starting a new series. We've been in uh, Genesis for uh, quite a while, since the beginning of the year. And uh, we're starting now uh, in Colossians. We'll be going through Colossians, through Easter, to after Easter. Uh, one of the unique facets of this particular sermon series, it's nothing I've ever done before, we are going through the same series together with two other churches on the same, generally the same schedule. Um, So in our newsletter this week, we'll send links to the uh, sermons coming from those churches so you um, can see how badly you made out when you hired me. Um, But no, it's going to be a good way to hear just different perspectives, different voices, and it can help enrich the text. And so uh, we begin today in Colossians 1, 1 through 8. Before we look at this passage, let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for the opportunity as always, to stand here, a broken and sinful man uh, who has studied and is prepared as best as he can to deliver the word of God. And I thank you that it has not, nothing to do with me or my intellect or the words that I use truly. The effectiveness of this sermon has to do with you, your spirit's power. And so God, in that comfort, I pray that we all open ourselves up to the power of that spirit that we would either feel conviction or encouragement, whatever you have for us this morning, and that we would trust and listen for your truth. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, So when I started, when you start a new series, you kind of have to introduce the book. And so the first thing I wrote in my notes was this, Colossians, an epistle written to the church of Colossae or Colossae, by the Apostle Paul. And I stopped there and I realized there are several terms here that maybe, and I hope, not everybody knows what they mean. (laughs) Um, There's a lot of Christianese in there. What's an apostle? What's an epistle? So we're going to start today by defining those words. What's an apostle and what's an epistle? And I hope that it will be uh, beneficial to all of us. So to start all the way back at the beginning, Christianity believes that we are created uh, by God a magnificent, kind, loving God. And then in the beginning, we just went through this around uh, uh, Christmas time, 
what happened? Sin entered the world through humankind and it separated us in relationship from that magnificent creator. God himself, instead of waiting for us or telling us how we could repair what we had done, he himself took upon the burden of repairing that break. And so to Christians, we look at Jesus. We just talked about this with our children a few moments ago. Jesus came to the earth in the first century, and we believe that he was not only a man, but we believe that he was God. We believe Jesus was God in the flesh. We're going to see this uh, as we go through Colossians. We read one verse this morning about Jesus being the full, in, in Jesus the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. A few verses uh, in the future from where we are now, it calls Jesus the image of the invisible God. And so we have this character, Jesus, Jesus the Christ, where we get the word Christian, he was flesh on the earth. And that was just the beginning. He taught, he taught things on earth. And after he was crucified for our sins, after he resurrected in victory over death and sin, he ascended to heaven. And when he ascended to heaven, he left his closest students to share that message, the message of his salvation with the rest of the world. Those students that knew Jesus personally, that were given that task, are called apostles. That's what an apostle is. There are no modern apostles. The apostles were this group of people, this group of men. Now, they went about their task. Most of them died while preaching because of what they were preaching. Only one survived, but all of them were imprisoned. And so certainly... Carrying the message of Christ was dangerous for them, but the outcome of what they did is this right here. This is their work. We sit here in Columbia, South Carolina, talking about Jesus because they carried out their task. The apostles did their work. Now, Paul, the writer of this particular book that we're looking at now, Colossians, is a little different. He wasn't a part of that small group of students. In fact, while Jesus was alive, Paul was alive as well, but he was part of a really toxic group of people that were enemies with Jesus Christ called the Pharisees. And so, in fact, as the apostles went out to start preaching what they called the way, which we now call Christianity, Paul was responsible for having many of their followers killed. He was vehemently against Christianity. He hated it. He hated what Jesus stood for. You can read about this in the Bible in Acts 9. Paul, um, first, Paul calls himself as an apostle, one untimely born. You can read that in 1 Corinthians 15. He's referring to the way he became an apostle. So if an apostle is someone who knows Jesus personally and was sent by Jesus himself on a task to preach the word, and Paul was not one of the disciples, how did this take place? In Acts 9, we read about this miraculous interaction he had with the ascended Lord where Jesus himself showed shows up, Paul's converted, and not only that, he becomes the greatest missionary to ever exist on the planet. God, Jesus himself says, go and preach this good news, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. That's us. <laughs> That's us. And so Paul, what did he do? Paul became an apostle. He traveled from city to city, teaching about Jesus, the salvation found in Jesus. He would gather Christians together in these cities. He would plant them, organize them as a church, and then he would move on. He did that over and over and over again. And oftentimes he'd have somebody with him who was trained in doing this thing, and they go do the same thing. Paul not only was a missionary, he was a church planter. That's what church planting is. 
going to the lost, gathering them together, forming them into a church, a new church, and then going on from there. Many of the churches that we read about, and so when you see the, the, the title of this book, Colossians, it refers to the people who lived in Colossae, this city, and they were called the Colossians. And so this, uh, this particular church, like many other churches that were planted by Paul or one of his uh, other planting uh, students that he would send out to do that same work, uh, after they would leave that church, these other folks would mosey on in and they were false teachers. And what did they want to do? What's their goal? They wanted to take this or that, these other little things and add it to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what they were doing. So that could be the Gnostics or the Judaizers or any kind of thing. And what would happen is they would take, much like us, they wanted Jesus plus something else. They wanted to, to add this or that to their personal faith they had heard from the apostles to make their faith more palatable, to make it more attuned to maybe the culture they were in. Or they wanted to be, I, I, sometimes you can see they wanted to be on varsity Christianity, not just JV. They wanted to do it better than anybody else. And so they added to Jesus. And Paul, because of the task that he was given, he heard about these things. And what did he do? He would send letters, either correcting, most of the time, yes, correcting, and also encouraging these churches, correcting them and encouraging them. Those letters are called epistles, epistles. So what's an apostle? Someone who's set on the task of spreading the, 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 the good news of the gospel by Jesus himself. And what are epistles? The letters of correction and encouragement that have been saved through the years. Colossians is just such a thing. The letter of Colossians is a letter of encouragement and correction to a church who had heard the gospel, it had taken root, they become a church, and then false teachers had come in to try and add to that truth. This letter is going to help this church, it's going to help us as well, encourage them in what they're doing well, but also correct them for what has gone astray. And so that actually gives us the answer to the next question. Why do we read these old letters? Why do we read them? And this is what this is. You can see in verses one and two, that's what this is. Paul, an apostle of Christ by the will of God and Timothy, one of these men he's training to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace. This is an intro to a letter. Why do we read someone else's mail? Okay, it's a little weird. We're not being creeps, no. The same truth that helped encourage and correct these Christians in Colossians is the same truth that helps encourage and correct us even today. Because here's the reality. Truth has not changed in 2,000 years. It has not changed. Nothing's been added Nothing's been corrected. Nothing's been modified. It's the same thing. The same thing that was true for the, these people in, in the Gentile world in 55 AD is true for us. And here's something else that hasn't changed. False teaching is always on the prowl. Now, what's different is false teaching generally changes its face over and over and over again. Over and over and over again. So we may not be dealing with Gnosticism or Judaizers or, or uh, Eastern ideologies or polytheism, but what are the things that try to seep their way into our lives? The thises and the thats of false teaching. We have a lot of them, church. We all deal with false teaching. We all have adopted things that are not quite cor correct according to scripture. Uh, here's some examples. So if you think about Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses, these are um, uh, 
Christian cults. And what that means is they've taken Jesus, added something else, and then solidified it as its own religion. That's why they are not Christian. They've added to the truth and kept it. In our lives, things like relativism threatens to sneak in. That means uh, I really, we really want what is okay for that person to be okay for them and what's okay for me to be okay for me because that just means we can all get along. We want that sometimes. One of the things that you can see in our modern world, and this is not new, but it's something that's happening now, is the redefining of Christian words. Justice, mercy, grace, salvation. And taking these common words that that are very Christian, love, for instance, and then adding a different definition is a way of trying to change or modify or add to the truth. One way that we add this or that in our particular context, my microphone is falling off, um, is we look for hope in America through politics. Through politics. We've added some of those things to our faith or the American dream, more stuff. It's a good thing to have more stuff. Even good things, ideas about family, ideas about children can become this's or that's, the adding to Jesus Christ in our life. And so because Paul loved the church, because Paul was set on a task. The, being an apostle is not just a title, it's a job. It's a task that he was accomplishing because he loved these churches and he knew that nothing was more important than the essential truth and an accurate understanding of that truth, he wrote these letters. Now, what is that truth? That we are helpless sinners and we are saved only by the gift of God's mercy. That's the essential truth. That's the essential truth. And so what Paul is going to do in Colossians, what the apostle Paul is going to do through this epistle, this letter, he's going to give us a full picture of Jesus Christ, the truth that has not changed, a full picture of who Jesus is. And in adopting and studying and knowing that full picture, we or, and the Colossians are going to, were able to and we will be able to identify all the thises and the thats that threaten the truth in our lives. One author read, I was reading this week talks about how those who need to know what counterfeit bills look like, they don't necessarily study all the counterfeit bills. They study the originals and they know what the originals look like. And so when they see a counterfeit, they know it doesn't what? Look like the original. That's what Paul is giving us. He's giving us the original. So we're going to look at it in Colossians. And so these verses, all the way through verse 23, really are setting the pace for the whole book. They're the introduction. Paul has just greeted the Colossians. He's greeted us in verses one and two and verses three through 23. We're only looking at three through eight today are a way of him setting the pace. And so it can be tricky to preach these portions of scripture because there's really no blanket instruction or no specific thing. But in these statements in passing where he is in this particular case, thanking God in a prayer, we can certainly learn things from what he has to say there. So we're going to look at this prayer, at least part of this prayer of thanks this morning. And we can see in verse three, he says, we always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And then we're going to look at what exactly he's thanking God for. So let's get into that. What is Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, thankful for in this church? What's going well for the Colossian church? First, 
He's heard about their faith and he's heard about their love that they've had for one another. And all of that is bound up in their hope that is locked in heaven. So it's this famous triad, faith, hope, and love. Different from eat, pray, love, okay? In case you're wondering, it's a little different. Um, This one's faith, hope, and love. And so let's just go quickly through what these things mean and make sure we understand what each is. And so first he says, uh, we we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. So remember what we opened up with here. We have in Christianity, Jesus, God in the flesh. He lived a perfect life of righteousness. He died to satiate, to satisfy God's good need for actual, true justice. And then what happened? He rose again to secure victory of death over sin. Excuse me, of death and sin. Um, And so what is faith in Christ? Faith in Christ, very simply, is believing that you are saved not by what you do for God, but by what God has already done for you. That's faith in Christ. So when you hear, if you've never heard this phrase before, if you heard somebody say it, you don't know what it means, and they say, I have faith in Jesus, what that really means is, I believe that I can't earn my way back to God, but in fact, I believe and trust in the fact that God has done whatever is necessary to save me. That's what faith in Christ means. The faith of the Colossians apparently was very strong. This is what we call the good news of the gospel, that God has done the work and they have faith in Christ worthy of thanks. Paul's also thankful in the end of verse four that they are showing love for the other saints. He says it right there, and the love that you have for all the saints. Now, Uh, This phrase, love of the saints, and and the idea of love encompasses a lot. Uh, You can actually see a little bit of what it means as he goes into verses, the end of verse 5 into 6. He finishes this idea of hope laid up in heaven. We'll get to that in a moment. But he says, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you and indeed is in the whole world. It's bearing fruit and increasing, meaning the gospel is spreading. And he also talks about how it is also, as it also does among you, this love for the saints is a fruit of faith in Christ. It's a fruit of the gospel. And so when we hear about his thankfulness of their love, we can hear that it is a thankfulness for a life that is pleasing to God. They're loving one another. It's important to understand, I think, in these small phrases, the order of things. You see, love doesn't come first. Love doesn't come first. And so the life of Christianity or the life that pleases God is not as simple as a mantra, I have to love more, I have to love more, I have to love more. No, in fact, it's a result of something else completely. It's not a result of effort. It's a result of the grace of Jesus Christ. You can see this in verse eight. And he has made known to us your love in the spirit. That phrase in the spirit means the love they have for others, the love they have for their neighbors, the love that they're exhibiting is a result of their faith in Christ. And as they get to know Christ, it is changing who they are and changing their perspective. Now, it does say he's specifically thankful for their love that they have for the saints, but that is not a moment to say, well, we only have to love the church. That's what that means. He's just thankful for how they treat one another. I think if Paul was writing us a letter, he'd be thankful for the same thing. So the things we see here, how we care for one another in this place is probably very similar to what you saw in the Colossian church as well. We then come to literally the center of this passage. If you know anything about 
uh, the structure of poems at times or the structure of, of certain, uh, or certain literary devices, this, this particular passage is chiastic, meaning it starts one way, finishes here, and then it goes back and reverse the other way. This entire passage is literally focused on the idea of hope, a hope laid up in heaven. So let's talk for just a few moments here about hope. It says here, Again, he's heard of their faith in Christ and the love that they have for the saints. And both of these things are rooted in one thing in the beginning of verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Hope here is a precipitating factor of their strong faith and their love for one another. Uh, Just to give you an idea what hope means, I think there's a lot of different ways you can define this, but an official definition, hope indicates the expectation which one exercises or uh, the outcome or object expected or the basis of one's expectations. So as we talk about hope, these Colossians, for us, when we talk about hope, it's the looking forward to the end result of what Jesus has done. That's the hope that they're looking to. What is the only hope? And I hope some of you thought Obi-Wan Kenobi as well or else I'm a giant nerd. But um, No, it's not Obi-Wan Kenobi, John, okay? Um, It is Jesus Christ. What's the only truth that guarantees a certain outcome? There's only one truth that does that. The good news of Jesus Christ and the salvation of sinners. Let's talk about why this is hope. Knowing what hope is, why is the message of Jesus Christ hopeful? Let's start on a human level. Let's start on a human level. Think about your problems. Think about your problems. We all have them in varying degrees. There's too many to name, but maybe your problem is loneliness. Maybe your problem is pain, physical, emotional. Maybe your problem is loss. Maybe your problem is confusion. But when we look at Jesus Christ, our Savior, God in the flesh, in our problems, we can know a few things. We can know, first of all, we are seen. Jesus is God. That means he's all-knowing. He sees and knows our problems. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. That means he's all-powerful, which means we can breathe a sigh of relief knowing that not only does he see our problems, he has a hand in them. Jesus is God in the flesh, which means he's all loving. And so he's not just seeing them. He doesn't just control them. He loves us and we can trust him to do what is best through our problems. That's a human level. So every day, kind of things that run into us that are obstacles, there is true hope in Jesus Christ. Moving to a spiritual level, let's talk about sin. We talked early on about how God created us. He created us for relationship, and then our sin broke that relationship. And so sin, in this case, is the things we do against God on purpose or even on accident. Maybe that has to do with people-pleasing. Maybe that has to do with lust. Maybe that has to do with anger or impatience or greed or jealousy. You name it. In Christ... And in Christ alone are those things covered by his life, forgiven by his death, and erased by his resurrection. That's it. Sin can't be handled any other way. Time doesn't do that. (laughs) You can't do enough good things to make up for the bad. You 
can't do those things. They don't work. So there's only hope in one place for the things we do against God. It is Jesus Christ. That's it. So only faith in Jesus Christ creates this kind of hope that is talked about here, that the Colossians are grasping onto. Now, it's interesting, it's not just hope, but hope laid up in heaven for them. And so what's the idea here? Faith in Christ and the, the gift of salvation is connected directly to Jesus Christ. And where is Jesus Christ? He's in heaven, he ascended. And so what God has done is he's not left salvation to be, um, uh, to chance. He's not left salvation to chance. It's not in our hands to mold and work out and do and, and hope that we can make it. No, God has locked away the thing that saves so it is untouchable. It's in a safe that's uncrackable. Nothing can touch it. Grace of God is in heaven. It's laid up in heaven. What Christ did was done in the past by divine power. It's held now in the present by divine power. It'll be delivered in the future and for eternity by guess what? Divine power. Human hands cannot change it, mess with it, obstruct it. And so Paul, what is he thankful for? He's thankful that the Colossians hope is in the outcome that comes only through Jesus Christ. This hope has caused enduring faith for them. They believe that they are saved by God. It's caused a genuine love of their neighbors. That's what he's thankful for. He's thankful that their hope is hinged on Jesus Christ. That describes what's happening in this passage. The next question would be, what do we do with a statement of thanks? Cool, they were great at those things, okay? Amen, we're done. Um, listen, what can we do? And I think the best way to handle a passage like this because it is centered on hope, we can actually use this as a kind of plumb line for our own lives. We can use this as a way to compare our own hopes. And so the question of what can we do with a statement of thanks like this is we can ask the questions of ourselves if true hope is set in something unchangeable and as clear as Jesus Christ, why, why in heaven's name do we try to find hope in anything else? Why do we strive on our own, looking at earthly things to, 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 to give us hope? Why do we hope in the outcome of those things? Why do we sometimes in our lives try everything but true hope to find hope? And the reality is, having hope in anything but Christ will lead to an aimless, wandering life. That's what's, what it leads to. This can play out in two different ways. First, if you are here or listening this morning and you are, consider yourself not a Christian, or maybe you're seeking it out, there is a clear and direct truth for you in this passage of Scripture. And it comes out this way in love and kindness from an apostle who wants you to know, not me, <laughs> there's nothing in this world permanent or guaranteed. And we all know that. We all know that. There's nothing in this world permanent or guaranteed. And yet, what do we do? We try to find lasting satisfaction in just those things. 
All those things that we look to, all those things that you look to in your life to find lasting satisfaction, either they already have or they're about to or they're going to in the future fall flat because that's the way of the world. The world is disintegrating. The world is, is degenerating. It doesn't last. And so if you're hoping or expecting satisfaction or fulfillment from things in this world, you're going to be left wanting. You're going to be left wanting. And so Jesus Christ comes into that picture. The eternal hope locked in heaven. He's the only hope that we have. The grace of Jesus Christ is all that we have. And the first step, the first step in, in Holding on to that hope is exploring what exactly that means, the grace of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Paul wants to tell us all, and we'll get to Christians here in a second, so don't think that you're the only one being called out here. Stop dabbling in the unsatisfying. It doesn't work. Look for Jesus Christ. Christian, the second way this plays out is in our lives. Um, listen, I'm going to do something I don't normally do. I'm going to have some questions and we're going to respond out loud. Two things is gonna, are going to happen. One, we're going to see we're not alone. Two, we're going to realize that speaking out in a Presbyterian church doesn't cause the ceiling to fall on you. So, okay, I have some questions and answer them out loud, but answer them for yourselves. Answer them honestly. What's your social security number? Don't, don't do that. Okay. <laughs> First off, and these questions are for me too. Do you believe you're a sinner? Yes, we believe this. Say what I said. No, just kidding. Answer it. Whatever, however, there's no formula here. Do we believe we're sinners? Yes, we do. Do we believe we cannot save ourselves? Yes, we believe that. We believe that with all of our hearts. Do we believe that Jesus is the only hope that we have? We do. Now here, this last question, we have to answer as confidently and as honestly as we already have. Do we always live that way? No, I do not. We don't live that way. We don't live as if our only hope is this thing that's unchangeable and locked away in heaven and guaranteed. We don't live that way. Rhetorical question, don't answer this. How's that going for us? <laughs> it's not going great. To expand that, how does it go when we place our hope in being liked by others? How does that go for us? Even a good thing like friendships, how, do, how does it go when we place our hope in how we're treated by friends or the security of friendship? How does it go for us when we try and we place our hope in achieving our own justice by ourselves? <laughs> How's politics working out for you? How's it going building up wealth or building up stuff? How is it going putting your, your status and your success and your families as the center of everything you could hope for? Here's the reality. Those things don't pay out. They don't. They don't. None of those things, we place our hope in them, strengthen our faith in Christ. None of those things, we place our hope in them, help us better love others. That's what Paul is thankful for in the Colossians. And so we can use this passage to challenge ourselves in that way. When we place our hope in anything but Christ, we'll see that the circumstances we run into, those things dominate our feelings and our lives. When we place our hope in anything but Christ, what runs rampant in our hearts? Guilt and shame. 
I'm not doing it well enough. When we place our hope in anything but Christ, sometimes we find ourselves in this attitude of frustrated, arrogant self-righteousness. How could I do that? When we place our hope in anything but Christ, our anxiety is heightened. And how do we live when we don't place our hope in Christ alone? We live veering from putting the entire burden of our lives and its success and its outcome on our shoulders to demanding our comfort from others because they're really messing things up for me. That's the life lived without hope in Jesus Christ. And so what does hope do? Living with our hope in heaven and an unchanging hope in an unchanging Christ and an eternal, loving, all-knowing, all-powerful God who's already done what is necessary for our salvation, having true hope in that, it steadies our lives. It focuses our lives. And that's where Paul's taking us in Colossians. He wants to give us this full, glorious picture of the truth and he's calling the Colossians back to it away from the this's and the that's of false teaching and he's doing the same for us he's going to give us this full glorious picture of our savior and what he's done and then he's going to call us away from the this's and the that's that we've added to our lives to live with our hope in only one place and one thing Jesus Christ Large boats, <laughs> I'm saying large boats, it's just funny just walking away from the pulpit saying large boats. Um, I have a story behind that phrase. Um, large boats, let's pray. Um, large boats at times when there's a storm, they can use this thing, it's like a parachute for the water. It's a water anchor. And so when they can't reach the bottom or they can't anchor to solid ground because it caused them to sink, they drop this parachute into the water and it causes them to, to steady in a storm or to ha- keep a straight line in tumultuous water. And I think that imagery is perfect for what we're about to do. The Lord's Supper is, in a sense, our water anchor. It's our water anchor. As we face trouble, as we face sin, as we face the the, the tumultuousness of life, here we have an anchor, a steadying presence in our lives. It is not necessarily the bread and it's not the wine or the juice. No, it's this image of Jesus Christ and the truth of his cross. That's our steadying truth. That's what realigns us with what is truly hopeful. So it realigns us with the idea that, okay, nothing I expect from this world is actually worth expecting. The only thing worth expecting is what Jesus Christ has promised me as a child of God. And so what this Supper stands for the truth of Christ's resurrection, the truth of Christ's presence, the truth of hope. It's a reminder that there is nothing else for us. And so this morning, if you confessed those things, those questions asked earlier, if you believe that you are a sinner, if you believe that there's no hope for you in trying to save yourself, you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way, that you believe that Jesus and what he has done for us, not what we do for God is what saves us, then you are invited, Christian, to the table. You're invited to eat. It's not a work, it's a receipt of grace. Come this morning 
even if your hope is imperfect, as mine is, and eat this bread, drink this cup, and pray for God's spirit to strengthen just that, your hope. If those things are not true of you, if, if you don't believe you're a sinner, if you don't believe that Jesus Christ is the only hope, then the Bible makes it very clear that this supper is not for you. It actually doesn't make any sense for you to come and eat. And so we would ask that those same boundaries be respected here this morning, that the supper is for those who know their sin, profess Jesus Christ, and have been baptized. Let's take a moment. We're going to pray quietly. We've not had a confession of sin this morning as we normally do. We had a confession of faith. So let's take a few moments here. Take a moment to confess your sins. Confess the thises and the thats that draw your attention away from your only true hope. We will gather back together with a prayer of blessing in just a moment.